BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and I'm here with Liz Kleinrock, who is an anti-bias educator and consultant based in L.A., She's also a published author with Teaching Tolerance, an organization that creates curricula for teachers. Her work has gained national recognition through a mini documentary called Miss Liz's Allies. She received Teaching Tolerance's 2018 Award for Excellence in Teaching and currently serves on the Teaching Tolerance Advisory Board. Today, we're focusing on overall ways to address taboo topics. You know, those topics where we're afraid to talk about them or we're uncomfortable. And so we don't feel confident that we even know what to say to our kids. And those topics usually fall into categories of race, gender, sexuality, prejudice. And in an election year, it's coming up even more. So I thought we could talk to Liz about her wisdom and experience addressing taboo topics with students. What do you recommend parents do to get comfortable bringing up difficult subjects with their kids? Well, I think with any topic you are uncomfortable with, it's important to figure out why you're uncomfortable with that first. Um, And when you start unpacking a lot of those feelings and opinions, um, certainly a lot of things can come up. Um, Often these things can be traced back to our own childhoods and how the adults in our lives when we were young Um, talked about things, didn't talk about things, or reacted when certain situations came up. So I feel like starting there is often like a really good and very healthy place to begin, as well as being able to reflect upon what you might be projecting onto your own children. And then once you can get past that stage, thinking about ways that you can also educate yourself. Um, I can give an example, like if the topic is around gender identity and like the gender spectrum is something that you are not very fluent in, Uh um, making sure that you can identify resources to educate yourself. But also if your own child has questions that come up and maybe you're not quite sure um, how to best address them to find people who are experts in that field to um, focus your energy on and maybe create a learning experience or opportunity for you to have with your child. I'm glad you mentioned gender identity because that's a perfect example of something that's also age-related. People that are of a certain age and older, myself included, were raised in a completely different set of ways of thinking, of language, of um, 
everything related to gender, really. And and actually, we could say the same thing about all of the topics that I mentioned. But it's become difficult. And so one wonderful suggestion is educate ourselves because for some of them, there really are like, what is it about this subject that's difficult for me? And for other topics, like um, in this case, I hear a lot of people say, it just doesn't make sense. Like I just, it doesn't make sense to me. And one thought I have is it doesn't have to make sense to us. We That, that gives us an opportunity to learn more. Um, but really realizing that we as parents may not be able to make sense of everything and getting comfortable with that is probably a, a good start. And gender identity is a huge, huge example. So I'd love to even go further with that um, to talk through how you might explore information and learn a different way of speaking with your children. And this isn't necessarily just to communicate with your child if you think that your child is questioning their gender identity. This is for all children. It's just we have a different world now. And so it's about learning the language in the world that we live in. Absolutely. And like you're saying, even if your children are very confident in their identities as cisgender individuals, like their um, signed sex at birth matches their gender identity. It's still important to know about these um, different types of gender identities because you are going to encounter a hopefully a very diverse array of people throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's important to be able to educate yourself and also engage in conversation and build relationships with people across differences. You know, I think a lot of this work, if you're, I'm an educator, if, what if, you're a, if you're a teacher, if you're a parent, there's often this reliance on like your own traditions and your own nostalgia when it comes to certain mm. topics. Um, like I was raised in a certain way and this was the information that was presented to me and taking that as like, that's the bottom line mm-hmm. rather than trying to rethink the way that we can start to reframe and structure these conversations with kids to engage them more as thought partners instead of just one person delivering information to another. Mm-hmm. So how early are you having these conversations? Well, I think for adults, like that self-education piece about kind of just getting on the same page in terms of language, that's very similar work that what I do with students in class. Like if we're going to be talking about things like race and gender, we need to have an understanding of what race and gender are before Mm -hmm. we even have that conversation. And I think um, part of what is so wonderfully being differentiated um, more and more these days is that there is a huge difference between sex, gender, and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, Being able to differentiate those and recognize that when we're talking about um, like sex, like your sexuality identity, we're talking about like relationships. We're talking about attraction, if it's romantic or sexual, um, um, asexuality, platonic relationships. Um, when we're talking about gender, um, that it really is such a spectrum. And the notion of gender is something that is socially constructed because it has also changed throughout time. It's changed across cultures and traditions. Um, the same thing with race. Like I have been able to kind of frame race as a socially constructed idea with my kids who have been as young. I think like the first time I started to do this work with elementary age students, they were like in third grade or so. Mm -hmm. Give them examples like in the United States, um, I am an East Asian, I'm Asian American, I am Korean American, like my aspects of my ethnicity, my race would technically be Asian. Okay. Um, I'm considered a person of color in the United States. But when I was on a fellowship in South Africa, 
people of East Asian descent are often considered white because of the political and social privileges that they were given historically. And it's really interesting to, sh um, huh. to give examples of how you show up in different places across time, the way that you are quote unquote, like classified or categorized will change. Working out is hard. It's always been hard. Even when it's easy, it's still pretty hard. Bombas socks can't change that, but they can make it more comfortable. So if your resolution is to get fit this year, start by getting socks that can keep up every step of the way. Before I tried Bombas socks and I was told that they were going to be super comfortable by my own children, I really didn't think that there was any way that a pair of socks would really matter. But in fact, they are so comfortable. And when you have comfortable socks and there's a philanthropic mission, game on. Let's get them. Let's support this company. So whether you're very into working out or sports or planning on getting very into sports, Bombas can help you with performance socks and styles made especially for things like basketball or tennis, running, golf, and more. These are so comfortable. And honestly, who needs another uncomfortable aspect to an already uncomfortable experience. Bomba socks provide support in places you didn't even know you needed, like your arches, for example. Each sock is built with a special arch support system that's supportive, but not too tight, like a nice hug around your foot. Did you know that socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters? Bomba socks were created to change that, so for every pair you buy, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. And that is the most important thing. So go to bombas.com slash humans today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash humans for 20% off. Bombas.com slash humans. Hi, I'm Shanae Alexander, host of Press Send, a podcast and more importantly, a safe and hilarious place for candid conversations about the scary, funny, heartbreaking, but always intriguing questions that make us all human. Each week, me and a new best friend you haven't met yet field your questions across any and all topics and offer our take on the matter with plenty of humor, heart, and badassery along the way. We launch a new episode of Press Send every Wednesday. We'll see you there. Um, but the piece about gender, recognizing that gender doesn't have to do with sex or sexuality, um, and that when we can start to pick apart the ways that people are put in these categories, starting at a very young age, those are things that all kids have experienced mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, uh, shopping for clothes or like the toys that are marketed to them or the things that their peers say to them, like girls can't do this or boys can't do that. They all have experience with it. I definitely feel a little concerned about kids very publicly proclaiming what their gender identity is just because thinking about like confidentiality and privacy and if children and kids are like really supported in that very public declaration and what happens if somebody actually isn't comfortable sharing that part of themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think I would probably have to learn more about the specific context. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, but the, the, that's a really interesting point. And it's also, I think people are doing their best to try to figure out this new landscape and probably flailing a little bit. And in that might be moments of, you know, expressing all genders are, are welcome and we're open 
And then there's this sense that you're supposed to now take your very private feelings and talk about them when that's not necessarily the case. Um, so I would love to ask you, okay, so a little bit more on that. So when you're talking to kids, you, you can start young and give scenarios that they can connect with. So in the case of gender, you can talk about experiences they've had where somebody has maybe said that this is a particular outfit that you're supposed to be wearing, or this is a particular toy that you're supposed to be playing with or activity that you're supposed to enjoy. I can see that happening. What about um, helping kids understand, now I want to get into race because you mentioned it and that sounds so interesting. Um, I don't know when this shifted because it's been decades now, but there are plenty of middle-aged people who were taught in the 70s and 80s to never acknowledge race, right? And as an adult, you can see what a privileged space it is to not see race and to not acknowledge race um, or color or differences or similarities. But as a people that grew up in that time period, who I think it was a very well-meaning effort to say, I'm colorblind, for example, or I don't see these things, struggle a lot with how to shift the conversation completely. So you have young kids really explicitly talking about how everybody looks and parents that are cringing. So I would love for you to help us understand a little bit more about how kids are learning about different See, as I'm saying this, I'm uncomfortable. I'm like, I don't really know the right words to ask the question, but I know it's there a lot. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. So I'm asking you to help me figure that out too. Totally. I mean, okay, so if you're coming from like a more intellectualized perspective, especially if you are a white parent raising white kids, mm-hmm. um, there is a ton of research, there's a ton of data out there that shows how young kids are when they start to notice like physical, like racialized differences. Mm-hmm. It's a, I think, let's see. Um, I know there was one study that said that babies will look at That's like right. all faces equally, but they'll look more and like they'll look longer at faces that match like their skin color. Um, and then moving up to ages like three, four or five, that kids are already starting to make social decisions about like who they're friends with and who they play with based on physical appearance. Yep. Um, so like to begin there and then with, The colorblindness aspect, um, again, like going back to what we first talked about, like why do we have this discomfort? Um, Mm -hmm. Why do particularly like white people, white, like middle-aged, older, I honestly, I would say like white folks, like across the spectrum of age and everything. I put everything um, into middle age. (laughs) Tend to struggle with talking about um, these types of differences. And when I hear folks say things like, you know, it was taught or people said that, you know, it's rude to notice race or rude to notice differences thinking about, well, who were those people? Mm. Where are people getting those messages from? Um, Because if you are a person of color, I guarantee you, you have thought about and been confronted by your racialized identity every single day of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, The same thing if you don't identify as cisgender and heteronormative, um, you're going to be confronted with those aspects of your gender and sexuality every day, even if the people who don't identify the same way as you do, aren't thinking about it as all at all. Liz, um, that is so, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to say that even what you just said was so helpful because it's really not 
all people that are my age or grew up in the 70s and 80s. What I really mean is that white people growing up in the 70s and 80s who had parents that thought of themselves as pretty liberal were like absolutely not at all allowed to say anything about race. In fact, it was considered racist if you said the wrong things. And so I find it very interesting now that that's totally backwards. <laughs> and and um, But you have a lot of people that are not able to be great allies because there's no real understanding of what is appropriate or inappropriate or thoughtful at all to say or do. So I'd love your, I would love to learn that from you. Sure. Um, you know, it's funny because my, my parents are also like, they're lovely people. We get, we have a great relationship. Um, I am adopted. So I identify as Asian American and my family is white. And so growing up, we didn't really talk about race. We didn't really talk about these differences very much. Like my parents have talked to me about how they grew up in this era of like, um, accepted colorblindness as like the most polite thing to mm-hmm. do. But like the fact of the matter is like when we don't talk about it and we don't acknowledge that there are, you know, systemic systems of oppression that marginalize people of color, if we can't confront the actual topic, there's no way long-term to solve these problems. Mm-hmm. Like you can't fix like what you don't talk about. Yeah. Um, I think like when kids, um, like, cause I know like probably every parent's nightmare either, you know, is like waiting in the back of their mind or has already happened. Like being in the grocery store, <laughs> your white kid, like pointing to a black or brown person yep. and being like, mom, dad, like, why is that person's skin dark? Totally. And instead of like that fight or flight, like the chastising your kid or changing the subject and pretending it never happened, using those as like these teachable moments to say like, you're right, that person does have a different skin color than you. That person has a bigger amount of something called melanin in their skin, which gives them a darker skin color. Isn't it beautiful? Did you know that people all throughout the world have different skin colors? These things depend on the amount of sun we get. These things depend on the skin color of our ancestors. Um, Like your own skin color um, is the way it is because of like biologically, like who your parents are to be more, I wouldn't say objective, but to present it from a more like fact-based perspective Mm -hmm. of like, you're right. These differences do exist. This is why they exist. Um, And race has no biological like foundation, but we can also talk about some of the decisions um, and choices and behaviors and actions of people that they've made based around these differences, which is why we need to talk about it when kids are young. Mm-hmm. And again, I think because we have an election cycle year going on, the conversation is deeper and more intense than ever. And it's, of course, in front of our children. Um, so it's a time to really invest in this. But that's a perfect example, sitting at the grocery store with your toddler saying something and having the instinct to hush them because and that you'll tell them later why they're, you know, like saying something that is unacceptable when really they're just making an observation. Are you ready for some exciting news? Our friends at Go Macro have just released their newest macro bar flavor, double chocolate and peanut butter chips. Their mouthwatering new flavor blends protein-rich peanuts, fair trade vegan chocolate, creamy organic peanut butter, and their very own house-made peanut butter chips. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, they tossed in a handful of their delicious chocolate chips too. 
It's so good. All macro bars are made from simple, high-quality ingredients and are certified organic, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, non-GMO, clean, raw, and soy-free. Nothing to worry about. Sometimes nutrition bars can taste pretty bad, but this flavor of Go Macro, this new take on the classic peanut butter cup is pretty darn good, pretty darn healthy, and a fantastic snack for any time of day. Guilt-free, and in fact, forget about guilt, it's putting amazing nutrients into your body and into your kids' bodies, so your taste buds will thank you, your health will thank you, and your kids might even thank you for something healthy for a change. So get your hands on Go Macro's new double chocolate and peanut butter chip macro bar by going to www.gomacro.com, promo code HUMANS for 30% off plus free shipping. GoMacro.com and using the promo code HUMANS, H-U-M-A-N-S, for 30% off plus free shipping. What happens if that's maybe the first question your child asks you about race and then they pick up from you, oh, I shouldn't ever talk about this. Mm -hmm. Well, the first time I talked about this or I asked a question, like my parents shushed me. They told me it was rude and impolite and like, okay, like I just know from now on, like this is something that is not like up for a conversation at Mm. all. Um, But the way that I've also approached it with folks is I, I want you to notice how I look. Like my race and ethnicity are things that... I happen to love about myself. I'm proud of having the skin color that I do. I'm proud of being Asian American. So when you say that you're colorblind, you're really just saying that you see me the way that you want to see me that Mm. fits into your realm of comfort. Um, But truly, you're not seeing me the way that I want you to see me. Amazing. (laughs) Um, So I love I love hearing that. Thank you. So what about when kids get a little bit older and they now are not at that age where they just blurt things out, but they're now school age, like your students, um, and they're having a difficult time knowing what's appropriate for them to say because those seeds have been planted, that the white kids shouldn't say anything, that there is some kind of tension going on. How do you break that tension and allow for space for kids to mess up when they're talking about these difficult subjects and not turn it into silencing the questions and protecting, you know, you want to protect people as well so that all children feel safe and good in a room. Um, But at what point are you protecting kids and sort of silencing them because their questions seem like there may be a problem? Right. I think, well, there's a difference between like questions and statements that kids will make about these like social identities that we mm-hmm. hold. Um, tell I will me more. often tell my kids that there's nothing wrong with noticing somebody's appearance, somebody's race. Um, like this would come up a lot when, like, for example, if we're talking about like Black Lives Matter, if we're talking about the civil rights movement uh-huh. in class and a kid like every year will say like, I'm not trying to be racist, but like this person is black. It's like, this isn't racist. Like what you're saying, first of all, like it's okay to state or notice somebody's race. Oh, they're saying, they're saying, I'm not trying to be racist. I just wanted to point out this person is black and they don't realize that's not racist. 
Exactly. Ah. So they think that anything race related has to be racist. Right. Like that's a big thing that we have to discuss and like overcome for sure. Uh Um, But also like the difference is that if you use somebody's race, somebody's gender, somebody's like identity markers as an excuse to treat them differently, treat them badly, to exclude them, Mm -hmm. like that's when they become problems. Like I don't have an issue. And I use myself as an example. I don't have an issue if you point out that I identify as a woman, um, that I identify as Asian or any of these other things. But when you use them to put me down, that's where it becomes not okay. Um, and I think like, it's very natural for kids to be curious. So to make sure that your child understands and knows that you are a person that you can, who they can talk to when they have certain questions, just by modeling your own comfort and willingness to engage in dialogue, Mm -hmm. um, can be really huge. And kids are like, they're going to mess up. They are absolutely going to mess up. They're going to say things that hurt other people's feelings because Mm -hmm. that's what happens when you are engaging with people who are different from you when you are, you know, figuring out how social relationships work. Mm -hmm. Um, but to also model apologizing and not just saying sorry, but to try to repair that relationship, um, I think can be really powerful for young kids. So let's talk a little bit more about that. How do you help kids get comfortable with the fact that they aren't going to get it right, that these are difficult conversations for all of us and that the best thing to do is to give it a whirl and, how do, how do you talk to them about that? And then how do you help them learn how to make repairs when they blow it? I literally say exactly what you just said. <laughs> um, I think like there's such power in, you know, just honest transparency. Um, when I first started teaching units about race, when I was um, in a fourth grade classroom, we would have community agreements specifically set up for these conversations. Okay. Um, that we would be really clear about how we agreed to respect one another, how we agreed to communicate with one another. Um, I was also trained in restorative justice practices. So if somebody says or does something that harms another member of our community, um, stakeholders have the opportunity to explain how they felt, like what about a particular comment or action um, sat with them in a particular way and what they would like that person to do in order to repair that and repair the relationship. You know, like there, it's a very common like community norm or agreement to say like, oh, we have to assume the best intentions from everybody. But I've also found like in my work as someone who does, you know, anti-bias, anti-racist teaching and with like kids and adults is that certain people will often be the recipients of benefit of the doubt more than others. Mm. And so it then becomes owning your impact over what your intention is. Like you could have the best of intentions, but if you make somebody feel a certain way based on who they are, you're responsible for that. Um, And I think that's certainly something that most kids can begin to understand. And once they understand that they're responsible, even if their intention was different than what came across, what do you find they can do to shift? Um, well, we talk a lot about how mistakes, like if it's in this work, if it's in, you know, any academic content, we say that mistakes are expected, inspected, and respected. Expected, um, and I, inspected, and respected. Yes. Like we expect Great. you to mess up in mm-hmm. this. Um, I think one of the most powerful things adults can do is just be really open and vulnerable with kids. Because I think some of the, the fears that kids have are around making them those mistakes in front of an adult who they perceive to have all the answers. 
to know everything. And clearly that is not the case. Like yeah. this is my career and I am still like learning and unlearning things every single day. Like I am updating my slide decks for workshops <laughs> all the time because of the new things that I learn. Um, and to be really clear and modeling that with kids, like that this is lifelong work. Like you're not going to cross a particular finish line. You don't ever get to like check all of the boxes. Um, that's not how this works. That's not how lifelong learning works. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. <laughs> it it absolutely does because it it you know it it certainly feels like that. I I can't think of a time when anybody. I mean, certainly if you aren't feeling like okay, I've got this down, <laughs> then um, it's a lifelong process, and people are gonna keep on improving and and working on it. But I wonder, you know, how much should we be afraid to try and and how much should we give it a whirl? Um, because I've noticed some kids, I've noticed say, like now I'm speaking about white kids. I've heard white kids say, I just don't want to mess up. Yeah. So I'm just not going to dialogue about it at all. And I'm not going to say anything. So I can't really understand that in the same way that I can understand when I hear men say something about the Me Too movement, for example, and that they don't feel like they really have a place to say anything at all at this point, and they just need to bite their tongues um, because they're going to say the wrong thing. And so they just are like, I'm not even going to bother. And that is easier for me to see because I'm not a man and I'm kind of like, well, yeah, maybe you could bite your tongue for a little while. <laughs> um, and so while I see that on the one hand as an adult, I also think, oh, I never want kids to feel, I, I would love for kids to say, I'm going to bite my tongue for a while because I'm going to be listening so much and I'm not ready to say something yet. But I would hate for that message to go far into just separating people so that kids are just like, well, I just don't want to offend anyone. Little James is a children's clothing line founded on the belief that fashion and functionality can perfectly coexist. So you can have your kids getting themselves dressed with elastic waistbands and not complicated buttons and things that make it so that little toddler and preschooler fingers can't be autonomous but also looks really good. It's a collection of clothing that is tailored to the modern cool mom and her active kids. And it's made with eco-friendly fibers, quality fabrics, and hand-drawn patterns. Little James is a brand that offers simple, economical, and versatile options for babies, toddlers, and growing children. Inspired by her own three kids, Camden, Jackson, and Sailor James, Kristen Cavallari started Little James when she felt there was a gap in the children's apparel market. And so she poured her heartfelt care into creating this line that would satisfy busy everyday moms and their little ones. And voila, the threads are made with the earth in mind, pure ingredients, organic fibers, and recyclable materials. That's what moms want and what kids want to wear. Visit www.littlejamesclothing.com and use the code RGH20 for 20% off. www.littlejamesclothing.com and use the code RGH20 for 20% off. 
And I imagine it must be really interesting in a classroom for you when you have, uh, you know, a diverse group of students. How do you help all of the kids communicate with each other? Well, there's a lot of community building. Um, I would say the first couple of weeks of school are just around this these notions of trust and respect and what it means for us to be sharing a learning environment for the next like nine months together or so. Um, a lot of modeling again, like I know I keep coming back to modeling, but truly like if you want your kids, your students to share in a certain way, to participate in a certain way, I think the most effective thing you can do is show them that you're also willing to do it. Um, like if I want my kids to get over these fears of offending somebody, of saying the wrong thing, um, I'll often tell them examples of times when like I've messed up and like what I learned from it. Mm. Uh, when we talk about race in my classroom, one of the first things I do is actually pull them like on a scale of one to five, how comfortable do you feel talking about race? Um, and then they have to write like a little slip of paper anonymously, but I have to explain why they gave themselves like a certain ranking. So they we have these graphs so we can mm-hmm. see where people's comfort lies in our classroom. And then I like will read some of their responses out loud, like without using their names. But I can tell you the first year we did that, I remember the student who was also white, um, who was very brave and volunteered to read it herself. And she said, I give myself like a four out of five because I really want to talk about race, but I'm really afraid of saying something racist. Oh. And I will truly never forget like, eight other white kids in class, like their hands shooting in the air and being like, oh, me too. Like, I also am afraid of that. (laughs) But also like this collective sigh of relief that was just like, man, okay, cool. Like I'm not the only person who feels this way. Mm. It's not like everybody else gets it. I'm the only person who doesn't. And I think that's really, really important for young kids to understand. So that's great too. And they can see that especially. And by the way, with modeling, it's the same with parenting. The most important, powerful thing we can do is model. Um, Above all else, you never teach kids things by talking at them and telling them what they're supposed to be doing. And so I don't think teaching and parenting are so far um, away from each other when done well. Um, In a classroom, I'm sure there are plenty of teachers who aren't looking at the modeling component, but that's a really important point, and it's an important point for us as parents as well. So... What have you found is the best way to build empathy for these really difficult topics? That's like the biggest question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we do a lot of work first with perspective taking in uh-huh. my classroom. Um, it's some of my favorite work to do with kids. We have done these lessons, um, part of our curriculum where we take a kaleidoscope and pass it around the room and talk about how we're all like looking at the same thing, but everybody can see something different. Um, and that has been particularly powerful for me, like growing up as a person of color in a white family that when family members said things like, Oh, you know, like you're just one of us. Like we don't think about the way you look. It's like, well, that's great, but I can give you a bunch of examples when I was super aware of it and you might not have been, even though we were both in the same place at the same time, our interpretations of it were very different. Um, and that is also just super applicable for the way that different people have experienced certain things like throughout history and also like every single day in our communities. Um, I've done extension activities where 
I'll like read aloud a passage from a book that has like very descriptive language, but no pictures. And I'll ask all of the kids to draw what they visualized in their minds as I was reading. And then we'll take all of their pictures, put them all up on the board in the front of the room and talk about again, like we all heard the same words, but everybody saw something different. I mean, I think in terms of building empathy, that's like one of the first, like most important foundational skills is recognizing that everybody sees the world differently. And if you expect people to always see things from your point of view, you are not setting yourself up for success. Thank you. One last question, because I cannot believe how much time is going by already. (laughs) Um, Here's something I'm having trouble figuring out um, how to even articulate, but basically when kids have been so privileged as to not have experienced being in the shoes that you, like the, the example that you gave of how your parents were like, but we, we love you and we don't see any difference or color or anything. We're the same. And you were like, that's not my experience. If you haven't felt different in any category of difference, um, how do you help kids learn that, that really is its own privilege. Not necessarily a privilege, but it does feel like, oh, you, you've, I mean, you could look at it in another way too, which is it's a, it's a lack of, you haven't had the privilege of living in, in a world where you've had that kind of interesting experience. But let's just say in the broader sense, it's a privilege in that you're never feeling challenged or different. Yeah. Um, I think that when, Children are really young, like they're, you know, there are decisions that every parent, every caregiver, family makes about where you're raising your children. If you are living in a more homogenous area, it's important to start exposing your kids to differences, like different histories, different people, different identities. You also want to make that like a very authentic experience too. Mm. So you're avoiding like tokenization yeah, um, or just viewing people who are different from like a very deficit-based perspective. Like, look at these poor brown or black people. Like, look at these poor people of color. Like, look what they've endured. Because then you're also going to get, like, this example, if it's a white child growing up in a very white community who doesn't know any black or brown people, the associations they're then going to attach, if they only learn about people of color from, like, a deficit-based perspective, can be also really damaging long-term. So I think if you are in a more homogenous area that you want to start exposing your kids to different stories, if it's through media, like whatever you can get your hands on. But the first thing that I would tell folks is that you are trying to cement people's identities who are different in very positive ways rather than just the ways that other people have been oppressed. That is so interesting. So I have a question. What is the difference and how can you, you know, help your kids be participants in helping heal your own community And also not associate areas in your community that need healing with then becoming part of another racial bias, which is that I need to come in and be a savior in my community, my small community, um, because I want to be a good person and empathetic and volunteer. But then there, there does feel like there is something wonky about that in terms of justice. So I'm I'm not even sure what I'm asking, but I feel like you know, and you'll answer it anyway. <laughs> so it's a great question. I think it's really important to, like you were saying, like get away from the, sa- the savior narrative and recognize that even with terms like empowerment, for example, like people are already empowered. 
like people already have the skills to help themselves. It's whether or not um, systems have been created that allow them to do that, or if they're constantly pushing back against, you know, legal systemic systems that are continuing to marginalize them. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are going to engage in like any type of volunteer work, like doesn't matter where it is, there are almost always going to be people on the ground engaging in that same work who are actually from that community. Mm-hmm. And I think a part of the really problematic piece is when folks from outside communities come in with the assumption that, oh, we know what you need. We know how to fix it. Like we know better than you do. So taking away that approach, if you can go into a community, see what is already being done by the people there and ask, how would you like me to support you? Or how can I help you based on what you are already doing? Mm -hmm. um, Already shifts the dynamic, um, I think, in a very drastic way. Like, for example, I did some volunteer work at the U.S.-Mexico border in January with an organization there that was started by folks in Brownsville, Texas. Um, And I had a lot of, like, reflection questions that I asked myself about, like, what does it mean to be a person of privilege going into a situation where people are seeking asylum for different political and social reasons? Like, what does it mean to decenter myself from this work? Like if I couldn't tell anyone about it, if I couldn't post on social media about it, what mm. would it would it look different? Um, like how much of this is performative and how much do I actually care about it? Right. Um, is this really about me or is it about the community? Is it about people? Thank you. That's really so much to think about. I I've just learned so much from you in I don't know half an hour, forty five minutes. Um, and if people want to learn more from you, um, I'm going to put in the show notes information to link to maybe to your TED talk and to Teaching Tolerance. And your Instagram is incre- I've learned so much from your Instagram. It's one of the most informative Instagrams. Yeah. I, like I truly find social media in general to be the amazing pleasurable experience that some people (laughs) speak of. Um, And I haven't learned a whole lot. And yet your Instagram in those small bite-sized moments has made me feel like, oh my God, I had never thought of it from that perspective. And that has happened on so many occasions. So I really appreciate it. And we'll put that in the show notes for everybody, because I think we all need some help figuring all of these difficult discussions out and these difficult concepts as we're trying to raise kids and we can't even figure it out for ourselves. That's, that's a big challenge. And I appreciate that you've taken a lot of this on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate being given the space to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. So if adults want to learn from you, where can they find you? Um, Instagram is a great place. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a Patreon page also for folks who are looking for more like individualized support or have like more specific questions mm-hmm. or they can check out my website and email me through there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking this time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Mind blown in such a short time. Can't believe it. And I hope I can reach out to you again and we can talk about other things. And if there's sure. anything you have top of mind, let me know. Absolutely. Okay. Bye. Bye. And now for listener Q&A. My son is 19 months. He hasn't started talking properly yet, so I feel he sometimes gets quite frustrated. He's very quick to lose his cool. When his sister or another child tries to take what he was playing with or comes too close to his space, he's been known to hit or pinch them. I understand why, but I have to teach that hurting is not the answer. He's also bitten a few times in frustration and play. How should I be dealing with this? Well, 
That one's really tricky because you're right. He can't bite and he can't hit other people. Um, but it sounds like he really needs help figuring out what to do when he's frustrated. So the first thing you can do is connect with him and acknowledge, you know, he's very frustrated. You know, he's really upset or whatever it is. And you can label the emotion and tell him you saw what happened. You didn't like it when your sister took something from you and made you really mad and you wanted to bite them, but we can't bite because biting hurts. You can bite on this and you can hand him something, an inanimate object to bite. So what I would say is when you have a child who is in that place where they can't control their actions and they have those big feelings and it's too quick, you have to kind of watch them a little bit more than the other kids and intervene right in that moment when they're frustrated to help reconnect with them and move on to a solution that doesn't involve hurting another person. And then as you redirect them, he'll get better and better at realizing that he can redirect himself. You can also start practicing words like, I'm mad, no thank you, so that when somebody takes something from him, you give him the freedom and the right to say something active that might help him get something back. No thank you, I'm angry. Some of those things are very hard to say for a 19-month-old. So you just say it and give them the permission to do it and the body language to do it, and the words will come soon. SOS, we are an active duty military family who've been living apart for various reasons, and it has been obviously tough on our relationship and my husband's relationship with our three-year-old son. Recently, my son has started really becoming aware that we aren't with dad right now, and he's been upset. We haven't co-slept since he was four months old, and now he is constantly wanting to sleep in my bed. I wouldn't mind this, but I'm really concerned about the tension and conflict that this will cause when we are all reunited in a year or two, and we kick him back to his bed. I had compromised by letting him sleep with me as a treat on weekends, but he's been pushing it to the work week, and it's getting harder to help him back into his bed. Help. First of all, thank you so much for the commitment that you have made as a family to all of us. And I know that sounds really hard and a lot of people, you know, that's a lot of thought that you're putting into what's going to happen in the next couple of years, because I know today it is easier maybe to have him come in your bed. And I would say, if you don't mind, and it sounds like you don't, you will have an easier time as your child gets a little bit older setting those boundaries. So at four, it may be easier to say, you know, we just do Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night in the bed. And then you make a calendar, a visual calendar. They often have these in preschool programs where it's the day of the week and then a picture of your child in his bed or a picture of you guys in your bed. And he can go look and you say, what day of the week is it? It's Tuesday. Okay. So are you sleeping in your bed? Or are you sleeping in mommy's bed? And so you can make the boundaries very clear and set up the expectations so that if you don't change it, if you keep it exactly as it is, he's going to get, okay, this is just the way it goes. I only get these days. And it's very clear. If you get wishy-washy about it during the week, and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, you will find yourself in a position where it's going to get harder and harder. And I would almost say at that point, just stay in the same bed and don't worry about it and then address the problem later when you have to quote unquote kick him out. And at that point, you put him first on a sleeping bag on the floor and then you move him out of the room over time. So either of those things are fine. You can always change course. 
I would say since things are going to be very difficult over the next year or two, try to find the most consistent way to make your life easier so that you feel at least like you can manage this difficult time. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And keep on sending in your listener questions to my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And have a wonderful week.